Greetings, NSA Nation, and welcome to your 2013 March edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I'll be your host. We kick off this month's edition of VOE with Jim Kepler. He's the founder and president of Kepler Speakers, one of the premier speaker bureaus in the world. For nearly three decades, this firm has served as the exclusive agent for many of the world's leading public figures, heads of state, journalists, business authors, adventurers, athletes, and entertainers as well as a few members of NSA. Jim is one of the most highly respected leaders of our industry, and you'll soon learn why. Join me now as I sit down with Jim Kepler. I got started in this business when I was at the university level, and I was the guy, a student government, who brought the guest speakers into the campus and community and went and worked for an agency as a lecture agent for a few years. And it was in 1983 that I formed Kepler Speakers. So 1983, you've been 30 years in the business. How has the business changed? You know, in, in many ways, it's the same business that it, it always has been. The market continues to gravitate toward great orators. They continue to gravitate toward uh, the topical subjects and toward the high-profile individuals. But last few years, there's been some changes that I think have affected it profoundly. I think the, the opportunities in this economy are tighter, uh, particularly in some market sectors. There's more speakers and better speakers than ever before in the industry competing for those opportunities. And as technology has emerged over the years and, and as society, has evolved. The way the customer goes about obtaining the speakers has changed, and that's had a trickle-down effect to speakers and bureaus alike. So, Jim, speak to a little bit. How has the process changed for people to select speakers? Originally, this was a telephone business. It was That was how all business was, was transacted. You had an opportunity either as, as a speaker or as representative of the speaker or as an agent of the speaker to develop a relationship with the customer, to get to know them, develop a needs analysis with them, and determine if there was a good match for, for meeting their services. Today, in this business, and it's no different in, in every other business, the telephone is becoming somewhat archaic. People just don't want to get on the phone and talk as much as they did. I think that that's providing changes that are affecting speakers and, and bureaus in terms of how they have to go about developing the relationships with the customer. So how do you develop a relationship with the customer now? It probably differs a little bit whether you're a bureau or, or a speaker. Occasionally, there'll be the speaker that can develop an ongoing relationship with a customer and speak at many of their meetings or speak each year for, for the customer. But by and large, in the keynote business, most speakers are going to have one opportunity, at least for a several-year period, to deal with that customer. So it's a one-shot sort of situation. And there it becomes particularly tough because the, the, the customer is only going to uh, utilize that speaker one time and not necessarily on on an ongoing basis. So I think there, you have to create a business environment where the customer is going to want you as a speaker. You've got to really stimulate your visibility to the general public so that your name has some cachet. You've got to do interviews within the industries that you're trying to reach so that the customer is more familiar with you. You've got to stimulate word of mouth with the meeting planners so that the word spreads as to the good work you're delivering. You've got to maintain a great website and great video materials. That That's really how it's become with, with a, a speaker is is less prospecting and more creating a demand that, that, that exists before the, the customer contact is even made. With agencies, it's a little bit different because, in theory, we're looking for customers that we can be working with year in and year out basis in, in recommending and meeting their needs over the course of, of many speech events. I think the best opportunity that we've had has been through the exclusive speakers we represent. If we represent somebody that's in demand that the customer wants to have and they have to work with us, that's the flypaper. That gets them in the door. We have an opportunity to really show our stuff, really show the expertise that we can lend, show the, the, the service that we're able to deliver, and then it becomes much easier to, to hang on to them from there. It really becomes a matter of just knowing the group and, and really showing your knowledge of the group in the industry before you even have conversation one, and that 
really requires a lot more research than was ever done in, in, in the past before the communications with the customers even began. It really just becomes a matter of, of showing your expertise, showing that you lend value and relevance to the equation. So let's back up to something you said a moment ago about when you have an exclusive relationship with a speaker. Mm-hmm. The value to you as, as the agency is very clear. What is the value to the speaker to go exclusive with a bureau? Well, I, th- I think uh, there isn't always a value, and that's where the speaker really has to do due diligence. I think before a speaker has any relationship with a bureau, be it exclusive or non-exclusive, they really have to determine if there's a fit with the bureau. Not every bureau is right for every speaker. And in some cases, there can be a great working relationship between a speaker and a bureau on a freelance basis, but it might not transcend in- into an exclusive uh, basis. I think by and large, exclus- exclusivity brings tremendous benefits. I I think it it allows speaker to simplify their life. It allows them to have a partner who is truly invested in that that speaker's career and is going to be much more proactive as opposed to being reactive in in securing the engagements. It provides one source for negotiating market fees, so it enables the the speaker to obtain the maximum possible compensation instead of the least common denominator of various pricing sources working for them. But obviously, it also is a leap of faith for the speaker to be putting their eggs in one basket. So I think one of the most important things that, that there has to be is a meeting of the minds. There are plenty of speakers that we would love to represent exclusively, but in having an honest conversation with them about what their goals and expectations are, we just realize we're not going to be able to meet those goals and expectations. And there's nothing worse than a relationship where the, the two parties are not in sync on what the goals and expectations are. You mentioned about fit, whether they're an exclusive speaker, or as you called it, I think, a freelance speaker, a relationship where they're working with multiple bureaus. What can a speaker do to determine if it's a good fit? with the Bureau? I think they need to do some research on the bureaus, much in the same way as a bureau or speaker needs to do research on, on the, the, the customer to be able to articulate how the speaker can be a fit to the, the customer's needs. Different bureaus are going to have different fields of expertise. As an example, we oftentimes will have speakers uh, come to us that are very successful and have great opportunities in the faith-based community. That's not an area of expertise. We don't have a very strong customer base, and it wouldn't make sense for us to take on one speaker without a customer base to be able to fit them into. There are other bureaus that have very strong customer bases in that area. By the same token, some of those bureaus might not have expertise in some of the markets that that, that we do, like the universities or like the national and state trade associations. So I I think that it it certainly becomes a matter of what's the expertise that this bureau has and what's their customer base. I think another area that Beaker needs to look at is what sort of experience does the Bureau have and how oversaturated are they? You don't want to come in having a topical expertise or having certain credentials as a speaker and find that this Bureau has never represented a speaker of your type before and has no track record with which to point to. That would be quite a leap of faith. By the same token, you also don't want to go in if the Bureau has 47 other speakers that they're committed to that are in the exact same price range as you, in the exact same genre as you. It would be hard-pressed for a Bureau to be able to show that they're going to put the diligence and, and focus on you. And lastly, I think there's the personality fit that you'd want to have in any business relationship. An exclusive relationship is much like a marriage. You know, you want to date a little bit, you want to make sure that there's a a good personality fit because just like marriages, there's good and there's bad. How is it handled in terms of fees when you have an exclusive with a speaker and you co-broker through another bureau? 
Is the speaker paying a fee to you and a fee to the other bureau, or, or what's the arrangement usually look like? It will vary, but I think that the most traditional arrangement is that the commission that is paid by the speaker is split between the, the, the two bureaus, the one who represents the speaker and the one who's bringing the customer into the equation, so that the speaker ends up netting the same fee and parts with the same commission that they would be otherwise. But in, in theory, it brings about an engagement that might not have happened had there not been the, the, the co-brokering arrangement. Different firms may operate a little bit differently and different speakers may impose some modifications on that, but that would be the standard format. So as a bureau, I would imagine from a business standpoint, your preference would be to work with speakers that, don't, that are not already represented. The fee from engagements when you book a speaker that doesn't have representation ostensibly is going to be twice what it's going to be if you're splitting that commission. Is that ever a factor this is a business of relationships, and I have yet to find one booking that anybody can retire off of. So I think that any bureau, any agency that is looking to make a quick kill that is more transactional focused instead of relationship focused is not going to last long. The important thing is to find the best fit for that organization. And we have speakers that we have fabulous relationship with on a freelance basis. We have numerous speakers that we represent on an exclusive basis. But there are times when we're dealing with an organization that we know that the best fit for them involves somebody who's exclusively represented by another bureau in the industry. And we would rather take a half a commission and get the right fit and know that that customer is going to be delighted and come back to us the next year than to shove somebody in that might be putting a square peg in a round hole, make a little bit more on one transaction, but then do a little damage to the overall relationship. One of the friction points in the bureau speaker relationship in the past has been this issue of spinoffs and who really does the client belong to, trying to track where the lead came from from a speaker's perspective. Can you talk a little bit about your expectation as a bureau of what should happen to leads that come out of a speaking engagement? I, I might differ a little bit than, than some of my colleagues. I, I definitely think that there's an obligation by the speaker to provide some protection to the bureau for the entree that the, the bureau gave that speaker. By the same token, I also think there's an obligation of the bureau to be following up and trying to stimulate the spinoff business on the, the, the speaker. So it, it rubs me the wrong way when I hear of, of some of my colleagues in the industry that will come back after they put a speaker into one division of Microsoft and four years later find that another division of Microsoft is bringing the speaker in and try to claim that they've got some right to the commission for that engagement. My comment back to them would be, you think you own all of Microsoft for one particular booking that you put in? And furthermore, what have you been doing over the last four years to stimulate? I think that there's a lot of my, my colleagues that have maybe created some of this problem by, by taking it too far in the wrong direction. By the same token, I think the speaker has an obligation to protect the bureau. And all too often, it's becoming more and more difficult for the speaker to be able to do that, even if their intentions are in, in the right place. A bureau can be trying to stimulate business for a speaker, and the first thing the customer will do when the recommendation is made is look on the internet to see where they can make direct contact with the speaker, and they contact the speaker directly. Now, a lot of speakers will do due diligence and say, how did you hear about me? Not many groups are going to say, one of your bureaus recommended you, but I decided to go around their back and approach you directly. Of course, they're not going to say that. They're going to say, well, you know, I heard about you. I heard good things about you. And before you know it, the bureau 
has really lost their incentive to be able to pitch that speaker because the opportunities aren't being protected by the speaker. And in some cases, it's through no direct fault of the speakers. So I think the, the, the question of spinoff is a touchy one, and there's been abuses of it on both sides. But my, my particular feeling is, is that there's an obligation on the part of the speaker to provide some sort of reasonable protection to the Bureau. And there's some obligation on the Bureau, if they expect that protection, to be st- trying to stimulate follow-up business as a result of each engagement. Why do you think clients would go directly to the speaker and not through the Bureau? I think there's a perception that they it costs more to work with the Bureau. I think that that would certainly be issue number one. Uh, I think issue number two is people like the line of direct communication. Every meeting planner has had a bad experience where the speaker didn't follow the instructions correctly and things might have been lost in translation, and they want to be able to directly communicate their instructions and their expectations to the speaker so that the end result is what they're seeking. And I think part of it is just the way society has become to a great degree. So I think that there's a wide number of reasons that play into it. I don't necessarily think it's in the best interest of the customers for obvious reasons. In in some cases, too, I I think what plays into it is perhaps a bad experience with a, a bureau that taints all other bureaus and leads them to want to develop the the relationship on their own. So you mentioned that there's a perception that dealing directly with the speaker, they may be able to obtain that speaker at a lower fee. Speak a little bit about fee integrity. Fee integrity is a touchy subject. When I represent people on an exclusive basis, we're the sole source for representing that speaker. And therefore, we can do deals that make sense. If we see an opportunity for a speaker with a group that has tons of money, is going to require a little bit extra work, we know what they've paid speakers in the past and that are comparable to to the speaker in question, we might be able to achieve a higher fee. In other cases, we might see an opportunity out there that we have to bend a little bit on the fee, but know it's going to be a great spinoff opportunity for the speaker or fit very conveniently into the schedule. So we have a little bit of play, and I'm a big believer in in doing deals that, that make sense. That is isn't always so easy when a speaker works with multiple bureaus, because the minute that they make a a fee concession or a fee reduction for one bureau, it may inadvertently undercut the efforts of another bureau. I think that a lot of speakers like to try to set one fee in their dealings with the bureaus and and maintain, as you call it, fee integrity so as to avoid this problem. That being said, one of the, the concerns that we as bureaus have is all too often the biggest undercutting is done by the speakers directly. More times than I could count, we'll have a speaker who might have a standard fee of $15,000. They don't want to bend it to the bureau. And next thing you know, we've, we go back to the customer we've pitched it to and they say, well, we booked the speaker directly. And we say, well, gee, was there any reason for that? And they said, yeah, we got it for considerably less than what you quoted. And when we point that out to the speaker, there'll always be a logical reason. Oh, well, I didn't know. Or, well, you know, they, they, they caught me on a, a slow month or things of this nature. But I think that, that oftentimes speakers are very focused on having fee integrity for the bureaus, but are maybe a little bit too eager to take the deal that's in front of them, as is understandable in this uh, tough economic time that we're in. But it can have some backfiring ramifications in the relationships with the bureaus. You mentioned that the client may shop through different bureaus for the same speaker. What should a speaker do if multiple bureaus call about the same date and the same engagement, the same client? In theory, speakers will often say, put the date on hold. Call my office and put the date on hold and we'll honor the hold. 
that, that's a little bit problematic in, in my mind. And uh, I, I might be, be bucking with the, the, the majority in the industry in, in taking that, that stance. But we rarely put holds on speakers' calendars. If I, if I put a hold on a speaker's calendar every time we put them in a proposal, we'd be doing nothing but calling speakers with holds all day, and we'd be taking up their time and, and ours that could be better spent for other matters. By the same token, there's colleagues of ours in the industry that before they even mention a speaker's name, will call that speaker and put the hold on the calendar. So what is a hold, I guess, is my, my question to a lot of the speakers. They'll have a bureau put the hold on, but they don't know. Is this something where they've already pitched it to the customer? Is it a matter where they are one of 40 speakers under consideration, one of two speakers under consideration? The meeting planner's already decided, and it's just being kicked up to the chairman of the convention to sign off. I, I think a lot of speakers aren't really quite sure of it. Ultimately, if a speaker is a non-exclusive speaker, meaning that they've got legitimate relationships with multiple bureaus, the bottom line is you can't force the customer to use one bureau over another. You can have a number of, of different ways of trying to protect the, uh, the, the the bureaus by saying who came in first or talking to the bureaus. But ultimately, the bottom line is who is that customer going to put the firm offer in with? And I think the customer's, the customer's wishes ultimately need to dictate the answer to that question. It would be pretty rare that the two bureaus are going to come to a speaker, each holding a firm written offer from the, the, the customer. And, and ultimately, the, the final answer, the, the, the speaker might try to be as fair as, as they want, but ultimately, it's the customer's decision of who they're going to place the offer with, not the speaker's decision. Now, there's other factors that may come into play. One bureau has done oodles of business with the speaker, and another is a, a bureau that the speaker has never worked with before. That might come into play. There, there's a variety of factors, but the, the bottom line is there's an offer in play. That offer is made by the customer to a bureau, and ultimately, the bureau who's going to get the booking is the bureau that's holding the offer from the customer. Another scenario that happens on occasion is a client will reach out to a speaker directly, as you mentioned earlier, but it seems like the timing of that inquiry, whether they call the bureau first or the speaker first, does that have any play on what the speaker should do with that business? I think the speaker needs to decide if they want a relationship with the bureau and, and not look upon it as a transactional basis. Just like the, the bureau needs to look upon their relationship with the customer as an, as an ongoing long-term relationship and not transactional oriented, I would encourage speakers to have the, the same relationship with, with the bureau. We might work 5, 10, 15, 20 times with a particular speaker over the, the, the course of the year. It's a pretty beneficial relationship. Now, you could go and, and, and mince and, and uh, try to say, well, who stimulated this particular booking, one versus another? But overall, that speaker has made a decision that it's in their best interest to have a relationship with the, uh, the Bureau. The Bureau has made a decision that this is a good relationship that they want to have in, in place. So I would encourage the parties not to get too hung up over any one particular booking. You know, I, I think it gets to the question a little bit, Theo, as to what's the origin of, of a booking? All too often, you'll hear, a speaker say, well, that was something I generated, and the Bureau will say, well, that was something we generated. Oftentimes, here's what might end up happening. We might end up, as a Bureau, pitching a speaker over the course of, of a year to a meeting planner, they, they ultimately decide they're not going to use that particular speaker. The next year, they're planning for their convention again. We go through and pitch that speaker again, spend two, three, four months worth of, of contacts trying to, to bring it to fruition. They end up going with a different speaker. The next year, they got a different meeting planner that, that, that comes into play. We've got to start from scratch with that particular meeting planner. Ultimately, they decide, okay, I think we're going to bring this uh, up to our board for consideration. They go up to the board, talk about it, and one 
person says, yeah, you know, I've heard some good things about that speaker. And another person says, you know, that's right. I remember seeing him at a different convention. And a third person at the board says, you know, I remember I read their book and it was fabulous. And I'll give that speaker a call and follow up on it. So the speaker says, well, how did you hear about me? And he says, well, I read your book. Legitimate answer. But that was one of about seven different reasons that played into this organization hiring the speaker. Bureaus and speakers get very, very hung up sometimes in terms of who generated the booking. And it's very, very rare that bookings come about that took place because of one factor and one factor only. There's usually a lot of things, ranging from the goodwill that speaker has created to the relationship the Bureau has had to some events that have taken place that in, in the, the, the public sector that tie into the themes the speaker talks about. So a variety of different factors play into what generated the booking. That concludes part one of my interview with Jim Kepler. Things get a little heated in part two as I ask him about fees, deposits, and what speakers can expect in terms of payment. We also talk about what's hot in the speaking business, what clients want today, and what the future holds. Be sure to listen to part two. It can be found on track eight of this edition of VOE. Our next guest comes from outside of NSA, but inside the world of speaking. He has quickly emerged as a major force in the area of technology and innovation. His seminars and conferences are attracting huge numbers, and he has the pulse on what today's audiences want. Join me now as I sit down with Pete Erickson. I'm Pete Erickson, and I'm the founder of Disruptathon and Modev. Uh, Disruptathon is a company that looks at uh, disruptive innovations across various industries. And Modev is a mobile development community that I started four years ago that has really kind of taken up a majority of my time as mobile and mobile apps have become so important to just about everything going on. Tell us a little bit about your events where people are pitching their technology or their event or their company. One of the things we like to do is we like to make sure that we get people out there in front of the community, in front of the people that that matter most to them. And we provide a forum for that. Uh, At Modeb, we do monthly meetings in uh, Washington, D.C., Miami, Los Angeles, Rhode Island. And we get people to get up and present their either their new apps or their companies or their platforms, really give them a solid platform to do that. And what I've seen over the last, the, the kind of the Maturity of the industry, the mobile industry, has been amazing over the last four years. I mean, apps started out as sort of cotton candy applications, but now the mobile industry is a very serious industry with a lot of you know heavy hitters and heavy players. So as it moves forward, these platforms for getting up in front of people and getting your ideas out there are more important and more important. Uh, we just want to make sure that we always give access to that platform for people that are trying to get out there. The, one of the number one things people have a challenge with in the mobile space is getting discovered. And that's one of the things we try to take care of. So once they're in front of this audience, what have you seen to be effective in terms of pitching their ideas? It's interesting. Thought leadership requires people to sort of rise above what they know the most about. People know the most about their own product. When they frame what they're doing in terms of uh, the industry and the trends and what's happening, that's when people are the most effective. Then their product seems to make sense because they've set the framework for why it is they're doing what they're doing. The biggest tendency of people is to actually get up there and talk about them, their product at kind of a granular level. Sometimes that's appropriate if it's a real technical discussion, but oftentimes what people are looking for is they're looking for something a little greater than that. I think the, the big opportunity for us is to really kind of help people become thought leaders, better speakers. Great speakers talk at a thought leadership level. They don't talk about themselves or what they do, but they talk about maybe why it is that they're doing what they're doing. So are you working with these developers to help them become better presenters? It's something that I think we're going to get more active 
deeply involved in. I think we've really let people get up and kind of just, you know, do their own thing. But I think that level of coaching is critical to the community. And what we realized in 2012 is that I think towards the end of 2012, it really became apparent to us that, that, you know, that's something that we could really do to strengthen the community. I mean, our mission is we want to build better developers and better mobile companies. And we do it through a number of means, through free meetups, through full conferences. Uh, We have an academy that actually kicks off next week with uh, courses and training. But I think one of the big missing pieces is uh, some coaching for folks that are, you know, trying to get out there. The people that are effective in this format, what are they doing differently? The people that are effective in this format are, they are able to present the case for why it is they're there. And it doesn't take long, but once you do that, you see an absolute shift in the room. You get people's attention because they're like, hmm, this is interesting. Now they've told me why they're here and why I should care. Now I care. Can you give an example of someone who's done that? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a, a lot of a lot of good examples. But uh, we just had a presenter last night. He presented a, a new application called StatSense, and the idea behind the application is that if you're a reporter or if you're doing anything that you that requires sports statistics, you have to basically subscribe to a number of big providers of, of sports statistics. <laughs> That's a tough word for me to say. <laughs> so he laid the groundwork. Before he ever talked about his app, he talked to people about the industry and what motivated him to even get this app started. And once he did that and said, you know, here's the case, now we, can, uh, we figured out that we could crowdsource people because they've got smartphones and they're at events. They can put in stats. And we can take all those statistics from people that are at events and come up and normalize the data and come up with a solid set of statistics as the professional organizations that have paid people at events doing statistics and then locking up that information and making it only available to subscribers. So it's a good example of basically here it is someone at the developer level laying the case for why they're developing an app. Once they did that, the audience changes changes a lot. They're no longer looking at an application presentation. They're invested and they're looking at a business case study. Although then he could talk about his app and the different features of the app and how they did certain things from a technological standpoint, but it has a much more powerful platform upon which he's he's doing that. Because he gave context to it? He gave great context. He showed thought leadership by not getting up there and talking about himself first. He, he set the framework of talking about the industry and why people would care about uh, getting into this business in the first place. You've mentioned thought leadership a couple of times. What does thought leadership mean to you? There's a paradox between what people will typically want to talk about. Let's say it's a salesperson. So a salesperson wants to talk about their product. But the customer, while they, yes, they will want to know about this product, the customer is going to want to know why their product is important relative to their business in the industry. So... What thought leadership means is thought leadership means being able to separate yourself from what it is you know the most and talk about what's really more important, and that is what's happening in the industry, what are trends, what are other factors that would lead people then to the conclusion that there's actually a good product there to be had. So thought leadership to me is is being able to separate yourself from what it is you know the most, but it's a challenge because people want to speak about what it is they know the most about. So what advice would you give people to overcome that challenge? The advice I would give is to, is to spend time. It, t- it takes time to do the research of your own industry and actually become conversant in, in your own industry outside of your own product. It's, it's a hard thing to do, though. So you have to separate yourself a little bit. Do your research 
and get yourself out of your own game a little bit. Well, this is very challenging for a speaker whose speakers oftentimes are expert, you know, they're expert in their topic area. What advice would you give for, to a speaker who has a wide body of knowledge within their area of expertise? How do they get out of that and focus more on their client? I guess you're saying focus more on the audience's industry, or what would you suggest for them? Well, I think it's a it's a good it's a great question, and I think it I think it differs depending on the situation. But I would say that what I've seen repeatedly is an audience gets interested when somebody can lay a groundwork and lay a framework that that's more at a thought leadership level and less at a granular level. They can get into the granular afterward, but bring something to the table that, that's interesting, compelling, maybe a recent research study or a piece of information or an article or an anecdote that doesn't directly relate to the, to the hardcore aspect of, of what it is they're speaking about. Help the audience then make the leap into the more granular information. That can apply to you know any industry, whether you're a medical uh, doctor going to a conference to talk about some of the latest innovations you've done. By giving some background context and some history, uh, your talk will be much more compelling uh, than, than, than just jumping right into the subject. You live in the world of technology and innovation and such. One of the challenges for speakers today is audiences that are texting or tweeting or on their smartphones. Does, is this happening in your world? Oh, absolutely. And what's interesting about it is sometimes we want it, we want it to happen and it doesn't happen. And then and other times it's happening when, you, you know, so uh, it's a part of it's a part of, of the reality today. Now, you know, when you go to events, there are hashtags uh, for Twitter so that people can ha- you know, talk about the conversation. The Modev community is all about smartphones and applications and social integration is is something we talk about a lot. You know, Facebook was a recent sponsor of ours for an event we did. And, and, you know, they were there because they want people to integrate Facebook into their applications. The social fabric and the social framework is a part now of pretty much everything that's going on. Have you seen any speakers using that during their talk, any kind of interaction with the audience? I've I've seen speakers use it in in various ways. Hashtags are a, a really common way that speakers can have questions brought to them during an event, say, you know, they're giving a talk or they're running a panel, it's easy for people to then tweet to a, to a hashtag and then the speaker can pull up questions. It's happening now in radio quite a bit. If you listen to Diane Reem's show or, or any of the other nationally syndicated shows, a lot of times they're pulling off tweets, questions th- via Twitter. So it's we're seeing it more and more and more. And, you know, I think it's being used to, to better effect, you know, as, as time goes on. I think the initial response as a speaker, when you look out in your audience and your audience member has a smartphone in their hand, it seems as though they're not paying attention. Right. But, you, but what you're suggesting is, is actually is a higher level of engagement when they're doing that. It's a different kind of engagement. You know, it's it's because I, I go to a lot of mobile events and conferences and put on conferences, it's it's now accepted behavior that people are on their phones while there's a talk going on. That's a, That's definitely a shift. Now, there's a time and place for that. But yeah, there's a different type of engagement happening. And a lot of those folks are tweeting about the content that you're sharing. And they're actually becoming an echo chamber for you, getting your message out there. So if you if you have a great a great line in your talk or you give some really compelling information, all of a sudden that information is now being read by potentially tens of thousands or millions of people within seconds after you've said it. So this is not a fad? Oh, uh, no, it's not a fad. It's a shift. <laughs> it's a shift. It's a shift, definitely. What's the next shift? Well, I would say that the next shift is the data. So, you know, we've, we now have the devices and we have pretty powerful processors in those devices. We have a lot of power in the, in the palm of our hand. Hardware will continue to accelerate just in terms of what it's able to do. But it's the data. 
It's it's and it's the way that data is presented to us that that's going to be the big shift. So from a speaker perspective, is data the same as content? Or is that different? Well, I would say it's different. I'd say content is is what the data is comprised of. Content could be the content could be the uh, sort of the cake, but the data is the icing. I have no idea what that means. What it means basically is that data is going to be the the creative aspect to all of this information that we have. So it's the way that we consume and visualize data and and how we use it to help us make decisions. That's going to be, I think, the, the next big shift. What would you say to a speaker who seems a little bit overwhelmed by this shift? You know, for, for years, speakers have stood up in front of an audience and given a speech. Mm-hmm. But many people believe that, believe that those days are over. How do you adapt to these changing times? Well, I would say that, you know, it, it, it's, it's, when people say things like, you know, those days are over, I, I think that those, those kinds of, like, absolute terms are, 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 are wrong. There will always be the need for speakers. And the reason why is people, people need leadership. They naturally look for leaders, and leaders give good talks to people. The, the change will be how that information then is disseminated, how it's heard, how it's used. I think it opens up a, a big opportunity for speakers today. If they're overwhelmed, I would say that take a step back and continue to do what it is you're doing and, and recognize that the opportunity to leverage mobile and the cloud and, and uh, you know the new distribution models is only providing you a bigger platform than you've had before. So people that are successful in speaking, just keep doing what you're doing because that's going to then translate into into this kind of new world. Have you ever been at a conference or an event where they showed the 212 video or incorporated it into their meeting theme? Did you watch HBO's Hard Knock Sports Series when they profiled the New York Jets and the 212 logo was everywhere? Sports teams and organizations all over the country have embraced 212 as a theme and as a rallying cry. Ever wonder what it means? We sit down now with Sam Parker, the author and creator of 212, as well as a bunch of other cool stuff that, according to his website, is designed to create better meetings, better attitudes, and better work. My name is Sam Parker. I am the co-founder of GiveMore.com. We are a company of a group, small group of people who try to help people be more engaged with their work. And how do you do that? We provide them with the tools and the messages. Think of it as themes or messages. It's, I wrote 212, the extra degree, it's a, and that's a theme that uses the boiling point as a metaphor to inspire people to try just a little harder. And then we have other themes, other challenges in the workplace like Smile and Move that handles people's attitudes and has them have a sense of urgency about their work and their service to other people. And then a number of other things about commitment, about care, and about each other. We're, the, we're all about encouraging the small things that can have the biggest impact on results. And a lot of those things are the soft skills, which in fact aren't soft, obviously. They're very difficult. All right. So tell us a little bit about the success of 212. What's it done? Well, what's neat about 212 is I, I, when I originally wrote it, again, it's 3,800 words or something. So it's really essentially a long magazine article. But it was packaged, I guess, in a way that people enjoyed it and embraced it. And it's connected with people, obviously, in an organizational for larger organizations, but also it's connected with people in schools. It's made a difference to students. So it really started as a somewhat simple idea, and it's it's not a towering novel by any stretch, 3,800 words. Like you said, it's kind of a long magazine article, right. but it was really packaged in a way that was accessible to the reader. And then also the message was universal. It was easy for people to understand. Looking back on it, what would you have done differently had you known it was going to be this big? 
if I'd known it was going to be this big, I wouldn't have restricted any money. You know, I would have been much more involved in the design process and things like that. I would have definitely done a better design job on the first iteration of it. The first five years, it, in my opinion, it looked uh, awful, you know, and, and even now it's not where I exactly want it to be. When you look at your body of work and the work you do within your organization, your company and stuff, they're, they're, they're all relatively simple ideas, but you package them in a way that makes them very compelling. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your creative process? Uh, unfortunately, there's not a creative process like one might think for me anyway. I am a thinker. I, I always look at things and go, what's the other side of that? And then I apply it to myself. I flip things constantly. I go to things that don't make people comfortable. I'll say things just to figure out what's the truth. I'm just looking for what is true. Mm. And I'll tell you, the, the, the themes that have come out, uh, they're not contrived. Okay, and, and that's why I think our messages are important and can be helpful to organizations, you know, whether it's a company or a school or whatever it is. So I don't sit in a room and go, okay, what's the next project? I, what happens is something occurs, like the cross the line message, for example. I couldn't remember where that came from because everything has a where it came from thing for me, a moment that it happened. And so I was talking about that at the dinner table with my kids, and my son, my 15-year-old son says, well, I know where it came from. It was after soccer practice one night. And I said, what had happened? And he said, we were sitting on the car driving home, and you were talking about the fact that we didn't seem committed to our work, and you threw out the cross-the-line thing, and then you told me, don't say a word, because I knew that that was something special. And then I wrote this thing. It came out over a weekend. Of course, that's only a you know, 800 or 900 word thing that is also a bestseller, you know. So what is Cross the Line? It's about commitment. It's almost, I almost look at it as almost a poem in a way. It's not, but uh, so it begins with, with everything you have a line. And one side of the line, there's a better chance for good things to happen. The other side, there's less of a chance. With every line, you've got this choice. You want to cross the line or you don't. You want the better shot at the meaningful things, whatever they are for you, or you settle with the lesser chance. So the idea is it's about commitment. So you've got one line, two sides, three things that will get in the way of you crossing that line, and four ways to handle that. So it's like, it's cool. And that piece, I mean, I didn't plan that. So but That piece is also very probably very meaningful to speakers. There's probably, there probably is a line for speakers in their career, which side of the line, the line they're going to be on. Can you speak about those three things that stand in the way and talk to it as it relates to a speaker's career? Okay. Well, the three things are the obvious, the real hurdles, the real challenges that we face, whatever it might be. So for a speaker, that would be getting gigs and opportunities so that you can get better and better and better and having the confidence to do that. That would be a real challenge. Breaking, you know, breaking into an organization would be a real challenge. And then there'll be the challenge of the naysayers, the other people. So you've got your real challenges and you have other people, other people who will not encourage you or withhold encouragement maybe, or tell you the wrong things, get in your way just because they just want to do that. Then they'll be you. And that's the third one. And that is you don't give yourself the confidence that you are actually meant to do this. You are meant to get up in front of people and send a message or help spread a message or excite or inspire people to, you know, do better at whatever they're doing or show them some sort of knowledge, whatever your thing is. So what are the four ways to overcome that? Choose to commit, work hard, focus, bounce back, or be resilient. And that's it. And you talked about the creative process earlier. I even look at my stuff after we publish it, even after thousands of copies have been sold, and ask myself, is it still true? Like, I'll try to bash into it and break it and figure out, is it true? Because I don't want to be promoting not true stuff. So with Cross the Line, I go, you tell me something more. Like, why make it more complex? Everything is simply a matter of committing, working hard on it, focusing, not being distracted, and then bouncing back 
when you have the failures or the things that get in the way. And resilience is a piece, is something that we don't talk enough about as, you know, in companies and accept uh, the challenges and fan that energy that helps people be more resilient. Your ethos and your commitment to your work is how do you, how can you make this as simple as possible? I think this is a challenge for many speakers. Uh, many speakers probably do the opposite. They want to make it more complicated or have more even in my question now, I probably have more words than necessary. Talk about how you, how do you drill things down to their essence? I keep asking what I can pull off of it. I mean, everything, all of my books, we have put them on pocket cards. So if somebody doesn't have the, you know, money or they, or they just don't have the time or the attention for a book, a short book of, you know, that's really nothing I write is over 30 minutes read. Most of it's probably 20 minutes. Then we bring it down to a pocket card. So we can actually get it on a two-sided pocket card, the main thrust of what we're trying to get out there. So you are a relentless editor. Yes. And you're constantly trying to reduce things down to their, to their essence. Right. What gets in the way of that? Uh, I might fall in love with a few sentences here and there, and, and I don't want to let them go. It happens when I speak, too, because I do love the sentence that can actually make a change for somebody where they go, oh, my, you know, that that. And I know the sentence is also spoken, so it's still important, but I fall in love with the five words, whereas when I'm on stage, I might accidentally, I'll ramble or something and go and say 12 words. So what advice would you have to speakers as they look at their own material on how to edit it or reduce it or make it more impactful? Well, you know, I don't know that I'm the greatest example of a speaker in the world. I don't know that I'm doing the right things. I've actually not, I've not been coached on it. And, uh, it's a very awkward thing, and I probably should invest more coaching on it. Your phone will ring now. Right, you I know. That I all these coaches. <laughs> <laughs> but what I find good is when somebody doesn't talk too much about themselves, or they make too much, too many stories about them. Also, when people draw out a story, I personally I don't like that. When somebody what appears to be they're like I can I can extend a story. I can take a story that I can tell in sixty seconds but I can draw it out. I'll shorten that story. That's the way I like it. I don't know if the audience likes it. So really, I don't know if it's good advice. It's the way I like it. Get to the point. You know, it's all my stuff is get to the point. Is that one of your books? No. Hmm, maybe hmm, it is. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Oh, don't say anything. <laughs> Another thing that you do very well is, is the packaging of your material. You've got great content and great messaging, but there's also a great packaging to it. Speak to, the, speak to that a little bit, please. Other than 212, which I can't control the package, I did influence this one, this second, this second edition, but everything else, if I have the ability to do it, I work to make everything fit into a vest pocket, or, you mean in a jacket and a sport coat, or in a back pocket. So everything's in, the, in this uh, four by six structure or less, or you know, just small so that it can be carried, it can be handed out. Well, not just, I'm not talking just in terms of size. I'm also talking in terms of the design. Your design is very clean. Even the fonts you choose, is that, I mean, it must be by, de- your design must be by design. Well, I, 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 well, I would have to credit my uh, graphic designer on, on, on all of that. Now, I mean, I worked with her on that very directly, but she was incredibly talented. 
everything you write mm-hmm. is very concise. You're drilled down to the essence of something. Well, there's an economy of your design as well. I mean, the design scene is not, you don't have flowery design or. Right. I cannot stand cheesy stuff. What I try to, like Lead Simply, my most recent book, which is has 212 potential. The, the, the way it's spreading is just like 212, which is very exciting. That, you know, even that title, you know, we think about, you know, what, I can, I can say uh, leading in difficult times or five points to lead, you know, to follow all that, but I don't do that. I try to think about, okay, what is it? And I'll ask myself and I'll sit there and I'll brainstorm that and try to find, again, it all comes, to, for me, it all comes to fi- trying to find, literally trying to find the truth. I'm not trying to build, build a business when I write or create something. I'm trying to find, I see a challenge and I go, well, how do we solve that challenge? You know, for Lead Simply, for example, you know, how, how the whole thrust, the whole model for Lead Simply is model, connect, involve. Model the behavior you want to see, connect with the people you lead, involve them as much as possible. Yes, there's a lot of things, little details inside of there, but I just try to find what's true. Like, again, I'm not making something just to sell it. I do want to sell a lot of it, but it's, I want something out there that I, I, I sincerely mean I want to change the world, and I intend on it, and I will, and I will make the dent in the universe, you know, the job says. We, my organization does that. We are a different breed. All of the stuff is about the small things that can have a big impact. Our mission statement, and we've actually put this on a poster, and, you know, we sell these now, and they are very popular. The ultimate mission statement, we're here to make good things happen for other people. That's it. We do that. It all works. Thank you, Sam. And now back by popular demand, the new star of VOE, Rob Shore, and his five sure ways. Rob? You may recall on the last episode of Five Sure Ways, we talked about five sure ways to be able to make sure that your email messages were being not only received, but read and acted upon. Well, you may be thinking to yourself, self, exactly how is it that I'm supposed to get these email subscribers? Where are they going to come from? So today's Five Sure Ways, I want to talk about five sure ways to increase your email list from your blog. So there's five areas that you should put your email sign-up box. And I want to give all the credit in the world to socialtriggers.com, Derek Halpern, for showing me the way to strategically place these five areas on our site, wholesalermasterminds.com, and testify to the fact that we have an amazing amount of signups on each of these and has really increased the email list that we mail to every Sunday night. So the first one is the pop-up, the dreaded pop-up. So many of you might be thinking, oh my goodness, Rob, I can't stand pop-ups, but I got to tell you, they work and they work really well. We use a pop-up program called Pop-Up Domination. And Pop-Up Domination allows you to customize the actual pop-up box and put it into a format that matches your site. So it can be done in light box or float in, just depends on exactly what style you prefer, but we're using the pop-up to great success. So that's number one. Number two is at the top of the homepage in what's called a feature box. So inside of a feature box, it stays static. It gives all the good reasons why you should sign up for email updates and perhaps it has an offer attached to it in our case it's a business plan template so number two is a feature box at the top of the home page number three is at the top of the sidebar 
on a blog post page. So top of the sidebar, right front and center, it's where the eyes tend to gravitate to most frequently, top right on the website. So let's go ahead and put one of our email signup boxes right there. Number four is below the post. Someone has just finished reading one of your posts and has enjoyed it thoroughly. And they're thinking to themselves, I'd really like to read more of his stuff. And lo and behold, right below your post is the email sign-up box. And they, on that momentary whim, decide to sign up for your email list. So that's number four. And number five is in the footer. Boy, that's one I never thought of, was putting my email sign-up in the footer. But it makes perfect sense. Somebody has just enjoyed your content. They want to know more about who you are. They go down to the footer, which has a bio about you. And there's also a convenient place to sign up to get email updates. Five sure ways to increase your email sign-up list. Number one is the dreaded pop-up, but we use it and it works very, very well. Number two is on a feature box at the top of the page. Number three is at the top of the sidebar. Number four is below an actual post. And number five is in the footer. We'll see you next time on Five Sure Ways. Thanks, Rob. Our next guest is a four-time Emmy Award-winning television personality who spent her TV career as both an investigative reporter and a news anchor. She's relatively new to NSA, but no stranger to what it takes to get on TV. Join me now as I sit down with Jan Fox. So let's talk about television in those days. When you were on the desk doing the evening news, did you write the news? Well, that process is you have writers, but I always rewrote something. And then there are several stories each day that I would be responsible for writing if I was on the anchor desk. As a reporter, you come in in the morning, you go out with a live truck, and you find the story. You run up and down with a, with a notepad and a, and a tripod over your shoulder trying to find the right interviews on the street. And you make it happen. And if you, if you don't get a story that you can actually edit, you have to stand there and talk in that microphone and tell them over there this happened and over there that happened. And this is why it happened. And this is who we're going to interview in the next half hour. So from a speaker's perspective, it's almost analogous to having to do a new speech every night. It is like having to do a new speech every night. You had to learn to say it in a quick hurry. So what lessons could speakers learn from that experience about how to customize their message to their audience? The first thing is you can always say it shorter. Always make it shorter, crisper. You can always get to the nuggets faster. You can figure out how to lead with the back end so that you have more interest in the story up front. Can you give me an example of that? Sure. You always start the chronological order. And so the other day I was coaching a young woman with an amazing story. And instead of going through her whole long drama, she started with, he was 22, I was 14, I had just been given away by my parents to be married. She said then, I shouldn't have been surprised. I never had any choice in the matter. And so she went into her story then. She almost doesn't have to say anything. You're so captivated by those first few words that she said. Yes. So that's what I mean by backing in, going to the back end first and not burying the lead. We call it burying the lead if you go, yeah, 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 and then finally say what happened. You can always start your speeches with the lead, with the bang, whatever the bang might be, and then back into how it happens or why it's important. Because it's surprising. It's always shocker at the beginning. 
Are you leading with your best material? I'm leading with whatever actually makes a bang. I have coached a young girl who's 15 years old and a national pistol shooting champion. Mm. And so she can stand for days and days and days, aim that pistol at these little targets, and they go whap, 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 whap. So I say, you always need to start your speech with a bang, and I get to. And then I show her speaking on the outdoor channel. And there's no way that her speaking matched her precision of shooting. So I show three or four tweaks that got her to speak beautifully. And I show that right away. What were the tweaks? Well, the first thing was not to do the um, um, er, er, er thing. The second thing was to look right down the barrel of that camera. The third thing was her hands just stood in the classic fig leaf position. Not fun, and you don't want anybody's eyes going there. So I showed her how to make her hands just go with her words. And within one, at the end of one two-hour session, I called her mom and the gun shop owner where I was hanging out (laughs) down to watch her, and they could not believe it was the same person just by little teeny tiny tiny tweaks, things that didn't even have anything to do with building her self-confidence. I never start by saying, okay, we're going to build your self-confidence. Great advice. So the, I think the, the equally intriguing part for our, our listeners is how do you get on television? No producer. No producer has time to answer an email. No producer ever picks up the phone to return a phone call in this day and age because all the, all the crews have been cut. And even if the PR people put things together, it's with words. So I say you have to think inside the box to get inside the studio, and here's why. They don't open the emails, but if you leave a box or if you leave a basket or if you leave a thing at the front desk that is directly relatable to your topic, they have to go get it. They walk in the newsroom, they start opening it, and everybody says, what's that? And all of a sudden, they're talking about it. What can a speaker do to determine if they'd be a good fit for television? Is their topic visual? When they show a PowerPoint, do they have all words or do they have visuals? Do they, do they use props? Do they bring props? Is there some action? So for a speaker to determine if they're a good fit for television, you're saying they need to be visual. But speakers, we, we tend to speak. How would you take someone who generally just gives a speech and make them visual? I can hardly think of a topic that can't be put into something. I'm going to give you three examples of just recently where clients got on television. A young woman, gorgeous, does a topic called Naked Health, and it's all about eating properly, whatever. Go on. (laughs) You like those Angelina eyes and now Naked Health. I can see where this is going right now. She had the great idea to do eat, drink, and still shrink at the holidays. What a fabulous topic for a television little airspace that needs to be filled. So she put together a basket of all the things that she, you could still eat and drink, including wine. And she put in a laminated sheet in her colors. She has orange and green as her colors. So she took a sheet of paper, put all the segment on it, the intro, short intro, a question, short outro, contact information. And she laminated that so it stuck up in the basket, ready-made segment. So she dropped that off and within minutes she was on. She had a call to be on and they ran it twice and she was delightful. That's one. There's a guy who's written a book called Chief Daddy Officer. And he wrote that because 
his seven-year-old daughter became his sole property at age seven, and he had to raise her, and all he knew was his business principles. He was a CEO and very successful company, sold a few. He just knew business principles. So he raised her by gap analysis, by business plan, by trust and verify, things like that. And I said, well, I think you're going to have to use some cookies to get on. And he said, I don't do cookies. I said, I know you don't do cookies. And this would be very superficial sounding. I mean, I know it sounds superficial. But let's buy a cookie in the shape of a necktie, a dollar sign, a little girl, and your book, and put them in the basket with the book and ask, what do all of these things have in common just in time for Father's Day? Well, they dropped baskets at several stations and ended up on three. That's how it works. I'm not kidding. I know this sounds like content doesn't matter, but content doesn't matter if it's all written on pages and you send, no matter how good the content is, if you send that kind of stuff to the news stations these days, you have to have a, a, a public relations person with the deepest contacts in the world to get yourself on television like that, or you have to have written the best seller book. Or So this sounds very similar. In, in direct mail, they call they say send lumpy mail. Okay. Right? Because if it's lumpy, you're intrigued, you're going to open it. And you've taken lumpy mail <laughs> to a whole new level. And, and what's great about this strategy, it sounds like it's something that's very easy for a speaker to do on their own. Uh, and, and as you're saying these things, my thought is, gosh, what if everyone just starts sending baskets to every producer? It's going to lose its effect. But my our experience is that most people probably won't do this. Yeah, most people won't do this. Most people will say it's a little hokey. In just the last few months, four people have tried some things and ended up on television. So you, you're pretty convinced that no matter what your topic is, there is something that you can create, some sort of basket or offering to send to the producers at the station that would convey the, convey in a visual manner what your message is. It would either convey what your message is specifically, or it would convey some tangent that highlights or some some kind of extra little way of looking at what you do. So there'd be a tie-in to there'd your be a topic. Tie-in. There has to be a tie-in. You can't just... In fact, I put some of this on a LinkedIn blog, and a very well-known media coach wrote back and said, I've never been bribed by the brownies. So it missed the whole point. I don't say, send a bunch of brownies and hope you get on. No. It's send your content in something, as you say, lumpy, that gets their attention. Well, Jan, you certainly got our attention. Thank you. Speaking of attention-getting, CSP, CPAE, Speaker Hall of Fame member, Bill Cates is here to talk about the upcoming CSP, CPAE, Big Idea Summit taking place in Chicago, April 5th through the 7th. Bill? Hi, this is Bill Cates. Valerie Cade and I will be your hosts for the next CSP, CPAE, Big Idea Summit this coming April 5 through 7 at the beautiful Palomar Hotel in Chicago. If two minds are better than one, then 60 of the world's sharpest speaker minds are exponentially better, producing big brainstorms, money-making ideas, and growth for your business. The CSP CPA Summit is an intimate, high-level learning event where many of NSA's most successful members gather to share best practices and solve their most pressing challenges. Here are some of the elements of the Big Idea Summit for CSPs and CPAEs. The extremely popular core of the summit are the Big Idea Mastermind Groups. Bring and share your best money-making idea with the sharpest speaker minds in the world. 
other CSPs and CPAEs like you. And you'll trigger new flashes of insight and brilliance, generating new ideas, revenue, and growth for your business in the next year. Each member of your mastermind group will have a chance to share ideas and resources and ask for help with a challenge. Between three mastermind sessions throughout the summit, totaling almost seven hours, you'll walk away with more than just one big idea for new streams of income and ways to energize your business in 2013 and beyond. At 3 o'clock on Friday, the summit kicks off with an innovative Snap Idea session. Snap is a fun and fast-paced sharing of ideas and resources, guaranteed to bring you big value in the very first hour of the summit. Professionally facilitated, you'll have a chance to pose a question to your group, and then the members of your group will focus on you and your question and share their tips, resources, and insights. First thing Saturday morning, Valerie Cade will facilitate a high-level panel on online learning systems. Listen, interact, and learn how to diversify your business beyond webinars into the highly profitable realm of online learning systems and how to sell them. On the panel are successful NSA members Patricia Fripp, Tony Alessander, and Sam Silverstein. Also on the panel will be Brad Lee, CEO of Lightspeed VT. Regardless of your business model, from keynoter to speaker trainer, it is possible for you to create a substantial stream of non-travel revenue through online learning systems. The technology has arrived. It's time for you to hop on the revenue train. While the Big Idea Summit will be focused on bringing you great value at every turn, it's not all work. On Saturday night, after a great dinner, we'll all be going to the famed Second City Improv Club in downtown Chicago, less than two miles from our hotel. It promises to be not only a fun time, but an educational event that can teach us all more about improv and how some of those techniques might just fit into our platform performances. On Sunday morning, I'll be facilitating a session called Money Talks. We will have three TED-like presentations that reveal some of today's hottest streams of income and ways to pump up your revenue. Plus, you'll have time to ask the experts your burning questions. Steve Eppner will talk about how to make money from hosting mastermind groups. Ruby Newell-Legner will talk about licensing your intellectual property for big dollars. And Jill Conrath will talk about cutting-edge strategies to leverage your database and expertise. Now, the Big Idea Summit for CSPs and CPAEs is limited to only 60 attendees, and the last two sold out. So you better sign up now. The dates again are April 5, 6, 7 in Chicago. Just go to the NSA website and click on the Attend button. You can see a full agenda and then register. This has been Bill Cates. See you at the summit. Thank you, Bill. Join me now for part two of my interview with Jim Kepler. There's some big-name speakers out there that have been burned by some big-name bureaus. Talk a little bit about how deposits are handled and a reasonable expectation of payment. Sure. I, I think I would take exception to uh, the notion that speakers have been burned by big-time bureaus. I think that the big-time bureaus in the industry have got pretty good records. I think that there have been you know, a, a couple of bureaus that have had financial challenges and have mishandled things, and it's had some taint on the industry. But those bureaus certainly have not been what I would consider the, the industry giants. So I, I would, would clarify that, that part. I think to answer your, your question, though, 
typically the the bureau has a fiduciary responsibility to take the steps to ensure that 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 speaker gets paid. And that can vary depending on the particular industry. It can vary depending on the particular organization. As an example, with most organizations, a bureau will will seek to have a a deposit, sometimes as much as 50% that's brought in to hold that agreement to make sure that the the customer is going to honor their their commitment. In some cases, though, there might be state universities that are prohibited by state law from uh, paying deposits, so the deposit has to be waived. In some cases, it might be somebody that has an impeccable 20-year record with the Bureau. Some consideration is given there. By the same token, there might be organizations out there that are incredibly risky, and there should be red flags from moment one that there's going to be problems collecting on this particular debt, in which case the the Bureau might get the entire payment up front. So it's a matter between the Speaker and the Bureau as to what the the terms of payment to the the Speaker are, and there really is not any industry standard or law that that dictates it. When I first got into the, the business, Theo, I I came from another agency, and and that agency had some problems financially, and they were very, very, very slow in paying the the, the speakers. They developed quite a bad reputation in terms of it. It was one of the reasons why I opted to to leave the firm. And in starting up my business, I talked to a number of the non-exclusive speakers just to introduce myself, and had the same spiel. Hi, my name is Jim Kepler. I've worked behind the scenes with you at such and such an agency. I'm starting my own company. I hope we can develop a relationship. And by and large, most speakers said that that's fine. Look forward to working with you. But one speaker said, well, Jim, you sound like a fine young man, and I wish you a lot of luck. But if you learned your financial training at that bureau, I don't want a damn thing to do with you, and hung up the phone on me. And I thought to myself, hmm, I have a little bit of an image problem from day one. And I I made a decision right at that point that I was going to pay the speakers the day of the engagement, whether we'd been paid or not. And it was my problem to collect the bill, and they could always count on payment in a timely fashion. And I think that most of the good, solid, reputable, dependable bureaus in the business have, have followed suit over the years. It gets to the whole issue of a relationship. You should really determine if the bureau is a match for you and make sure that you understand that not every bureau is going to be alike. Talk with the bureau about what their payment terms are and follow the track record. What irks the heck out of me is so many of these speakers that got burned by some of these bureaus had been burned repeatedly in the past by these bureaus. And if you get burned once, you know, shame on them. You get burned twice, shame on you. Some of these speakers were so eager for the next booking that they were enablers in terms of, of allowing the, these bureaus to continue poor financial practices. But the, the vast bulk of this industry is financially sound. They treat the speakers with, with great respect. And it's been a shame that uh, some of the catastrophes of, of a couple of these bureaus have, have put a dent in the goodwill that exists between the speakers and the bureaus. What is the future of the bureau business? Well, I think it's a very sound one, but I think it's one that's changing, you know, it's changing fundamentally by the minute. I think that bureaus have to really go out of their way now to, to show that they are a relevant part of the equation. They have to show that they've got some expertise that they, they bring in. So I think that there's a number of bureaus that will be dinosaurs if they continue the old way of doing things. If they continue to think that they can just simply put 5,000 names on a, a website and uh, show that they have a bunch of names but have no expertise about any of the, the, the people. I think Ultimately, they're not lending anything to the equation other than you know showing that they have a Rolodex that can uh, get in contact with the people. I think that bureaus that simply rely on picking up the phone and hoping that the other party is going to answer to develop a relationship will become dinosaurs in the business. But I think that there continue to be great ways that, that bureaus can, can show relevance. We really have an opportunity to see all sorts of speakers, have an opportunity to know what those speakers' strengths and weaknesses are. 
Very, very rare have I ever seen a speaker in my 30 years in this business that is the perfect fit for each and every opportunity. Different customers have different needs. Some want a big name to put people in the, in the seats. Some have a particular topic that they need their audience to be educated on. Some are looking to inspire their people and and create an uplifting theme at their meeting. In some cases, they don't really care about the speech, but they want that photo line and the celebrity or the the schmoozing that their customers can do with the celebrities. So I, I think that there's different needs that they have. And by the same token, we get to know what the strengths and weaknesses of each speaker are. There are some speakers that are tremendous experts on the subject, but not particularly great orators. There are some that are terrific orators, but might not be the greatest behind the scenes in social settings. There's some people that are tremendously amiable, but just don't know their stuff. So we really have to basically look for the the best fit. And I think as long as the Bureau has the expertise on the speakers, has the expertise on the customers, they're going to lend great relevance to the equation and be a great resource to the the buying public. What is the state of the meetings industry? I think it's, it's taken its lumps. About three years ago, everything pretty much fell off a cliff to a great degree. And it had to do with a lot of factors. It had to do with the economy. It had to do with the the, the financial sector of the the country, which was a huge portion of the meetings industry uh, taking a a tumble. It had to do with a perception that there was a lot of wasteful spending going on at at, at conventions and uh, people tightening up. Over the last few years, it's rebounded steadily, not dramatically. It might not be back up to the the good old days point where it was quite uh, before, but it is moving forward. But I think customers are are much more diligent than ever before. They're much more demanding than ever before. They know that they've got alternatives out there. They know that they hold a tremendous amount of sway, and they're they're looking for better deals from the, from the speakers. They're looking for better service. They're looking for better tailoring. And in this day and age of social media, it's a marketplace that's less forgiving of mistakes than than there once was. A, a speaker that doesn't deliver what they say they're going to deliver in a way that keeps the customer happy isn't going to last long in this day and age of social media. So I think that there's that there's some changing expectations uh, there, but I think there remain tremendous opportunities for the, the, the speakers that are good at their craft and the bureaus that have the relevance. What topics do you hear most requested by your clients? I think things related to the economy and, and business are, are right at the top of the realm. That, as well as just a general need for name recognition. In, in a lot of cases, They have speakers within their own industry that they're bringing in to talk about the nuts and bolts, but they need a big name to lend credibility to the meeting, to to motivate people to get on the plane and come and attend the the, the conventions. So I I think name recognition still is a a huge factor in in terms of people's decision. But in terms of specific topics, anything related to the business world, anything related to the economy, those are are probably the strongest. Since uh, the Obama administration came into office, healthcare has been huge too. It's been a subject matter that affects businesses left and right. The the core niches of the healthcare industry, hospitals and healthcare associations and the medical community have been fairly generously endowed in their, their meetings budgets. So they've been really focused on this issue as well. I think there's been, uh, there continues to be a demand for the inspirational speakers, those that really have overcome great adversity and can really be a little bit of a pick-me-up to people who have taken their lumps in this tough business climate. What topics are out of favor now? The topics that have suffered the most recently have probably been sports. I think that that, that general rah-rah is not as much in vogue, perhaps, as people 
maybe like, like an astronaut or like a mountain climber or, or people that can provide the same sort of themes but have a little bit better tie-in to, to some business relevance for the organizations. For a while, the environmental speakers and green technology were becoming of huge importance. I think that as other issues went to the forefront, namely the, the, the fiscal cliff and the, the economic recovery issues, those got put into the back burner, both in the public sector as well as in the, the, the government's agenda. And so I think that there probably hasn't been quite as much uh, business uh, on that front, although I suspect that that's going to turn around in the, the next four years. Those have probably been the areas where we've seen the biggest reduction. It's also been a tough time over the last couple of years for the university market, and speakers that, that specifically uh, address colleges and universities have found the going a bit tougher because the state budgets have all been slashed, and therefore the, the, the funding coming to the universities has been, been cut down. They also rely on uh, charitable donations and, and alumni contributions for a lot of these programs, and as people's portfolios have taken a hit, so too have those uh, donations. So I think colleges have been an, an area of the marketplace that's uh, suffered a bit over the last couple of years. You mentioned that uh, celebrity speakers are still a big draw for organizations, mm-hmm. and part of the reason is to actually get people to the meetings, because the meeting planners and organizations are having a challenge getting people to attend their meetings. For the for the Speaker who doesn't have the celebrity status, are there bureaus out there that work with those types of speakers? Who work with those who don't have the name recognition? Yes. Oh, sure. I mean, look, I, I mean, we've been fortunate enough over the years that we've exclusively represented everyone from, from heads of state to Nobel laureates to Academy Award winners to famous astronauts, championship athletes. But trust me, a large, large percentage of the speakers we've represented are ones that the general public has probably never heard of, but who have really emerged as as solid, if not legendary, speakers amongst meeting planners because they talk on subjects that are relevant. They've developed an expertise that's respected in their business. They've got oratorical skills uh, that that are, are evident to the meeting planners, and the word of mouth spreads. So I, I think that these celebrities are, are certainly in, in vogue, but for every convention or every business meeting that might bring in a celebrity speaker, they probably also have five to ten other speakers on that program of less name uh, renown. So I think there's plenty of opportunities for speakers that are good at their craft. Thank you, Jim. And now in a segment he likes to call the President's Message, which is fitting given that he is our NSA President, El Presidente himself, Ron Culberson. Thanks, Theo. A few years ago, when my wife and I moved into our first house, we needed to replace the deck. Now, I'm not very handy when it comes to these things. In fact, I had done $150 damage to my dishwasher when I tried to fix that, and I completely destroyed a washing machine. In fact, it was so bad, we almost built a basement apartment for our plumber, Rusty. And no, the irony is not lost on me that my plumber's name was Rusty. Get it? Irony. (laughs) So anyway, we hired this deck company to replace our deck, and they offered us a wonderful deal. Pay in full, up front, and get 20% off. Now, the deck was about $2,000, so I'm thinking a $400 discount was fantastic. The company had built most of the deck, but still had to install a stairway railing and finish a couple of small cosmetic details. That's when I noticed they hadn't been there for a few days. So I left several messages over the course of about a month asking when they're going to return and finish the job. But they never returned my calls. Then one day, their phone was disconnected. I began to think that this was not a good sign. I think you know what happened. They had gone out of business, and further, they had no intentions of adding a stairway railing and completing the small cosmetic details on my deck. Now, it was bad enough that they had gone out of business, but then I got a surprise in the mail a few weeks later. 
apparently they had not even paid for the materials that were used on my deck. And now I was being sued by the lumber company for $600 in materials. Ultimately, I had to pay the $600 for the materials and another $600 for a carpenter to install the stairway railing, take care of the small cosmetic details, and repair mistakes that the original company had made. Now, what does this have to do with speaking? Nothing, really. I just like to tell stories regardless of whether they support my content. <laughs> just kidding. I don't have content. <laughs> Seriously, the point of the story is buyer beware. This story does not mean that every deck company is bad. And it doesn't mean that all businesses are out to take advantage of us. It simply means that as entrepreneurs, we need to take responsibility for protecting ourselves when we purchase a service or engage in a business relationship. As speakers, we work with graphics designers, web developers, coaches, bookkeepers, bureaus, and others who help us with our work. They, like us, are in business to make money. Some of them may not deliver the products or services we expect. It's the nature of the world we live in. One web developer I used was highly recommended by a trusted colleague, and yet the company just wasn't a good fit for me. Several hundred dollars later, I had to make a change to a new company. But here's the thing. Most web development companies are good. Most bureaus are reputable. Most coaches are helpful. But not all of them. And in some situations, we may need to take legal actions to recoup our money. In other situations, we must simply admit that we made a bad business decision and chalk it up to experience. The key to managing a good business is knowing the difference. So the next time you engage a business or an individual to help you with your work, do your homework and make sure it's a good fit. And if it's not, take the necessary actions to correct the situation, learn from the experience, and then move on. I wish I hadn't chosen the deck company I'd chosen, but I learned a valuable lesson that has come in handy when dealing with other vendors. We live in a society that is quick to blame others for our problems. I believe that sometimes others are to blame, and sometimes we are to blame. Knowing the difference helps us to run a better business, and in my humble opinion, makes us better people. That's what I know. I hope it was somehow helpful to you. Thank you, Ron. Well, gang, that wraps up another edition of VOE. Thank you to all of our guests for the insights and ideas. Thank you to singer-songwriter Kelly McGrath, who has generously contributed her music to VOE. You can learn more about her and her music by visiting www.kellymcgrathmusic.com. Thanks to you, the listener, for, well, listening, and thanks to all the volunteers who make NSA possible. Be sure to visit the NSA website to register for one or all of the upcoming NSA events. Thanks, too, for the wonderful emails and fan mail that keeps pouring, uh, well, trickling in, actually. But uh, I appreciate it nonetheless. It means more than you know. Until next time, peace and love, NSA Nation. Peace and love. And it won't be long before our ship comes in. I said, it won't be long before our ship comes in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.